Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Solve for Why vlogcast. This is number 36. I'll be your host for today, Andre Hengstra, joined alongside Matt the Bone Broth Berkey. Matt, I was recently on Twitter. Okay. I don't like to, to travel well. on Twitter. Yes, yes, yes. I, uh, I was looking at some of your posts, um, of which I saw a ton of bone broth stuff. Sure. I saw a lot of garlic parmesan that, that's old sauce stuff. Uh, and then and then February second hit, right? And it's just a slew of just conflict. <laughs> you love the conflict. It's, I think it's healthy debate. Okay. I think that's a way better way of framing it. Okay, so this is I think uh, something that's on your mind very clearly. Let's take us back. There was a two plus two forum thread yep. post about GTO. Can you kind of like frame exactly how this whole conversation came to be? <laughs> uh, I'll give it my best shot. Sure. All right. So um, the, I believe it was the ninth place finisher of the main event. Um, and apologies. I don't recall his name off the top of my head. But uh, he created a post on two plus two. Basically saying that... Um, you know, the narrative of GTO that's been pressed throughout the community over the last half a decade, maybe a little bit longer, is quite misleading. And he went very in-depth with some points that on the surface may make some sense, um, others that may be a little misguided. But, you know, he's just kind of ranting and giving his perspective based upon what he sees from his surroundings. And bear in mind that he represents the everyman far, far more so than you know respected coaches and high stakes players in the community sure so uh from that a lot of debates burned on twitter some of which were saying like um really i i kind of hijacked um potentials thread he basically quoted and tweeted said like this is uh encompassing like a lot of what i think about gto and he ultimately was going back and forth with andrew brokus and basically said like um, you know, I think Berkey aligns this way. So I kind of jumped in to clear up some things in the sense that like, I don't align in a way where I don't think game theory is a thing. And I don't align in a way where, uh, I don't think it's applicable. Of course I do. I think game theory is the crux of all study. Um, and I think that that was true long before the GTO narrative and solvers became, uh, an important part of no limit Hold'em study. Okay. Um, from there, uh, basically, Brokus said, I think we all agree that, you know, baseline theory is a great place to um, learn from. But in an application sense, um, nobody at the high stakes is saying, don't take advantage of exploitable plays. And Potential kind of said like, well, yeah, Dominic Nietzsche is. Uh, you know, he's a primary example of somebody who is kind of dogmatic to the solver approach. And so then Dom hopped in the thread and um, you know, this isn't the first time we had like pretty in-depth debate about game theory. And we just kind of like went back and forth for a long period of time. But for like what it's worth, uh, I think it was from a very respectful place. I very much admire what Dom does and think he is like, you know, one of the best when it comes to vacuum study. And as best I could tell, we agree on most points. Our, our big point of disagreement is kind of semantical where I think that in a live venue, um, you can calibrate your ability to read an environment and make weighted decisions off of baseline, like away from baseline, I should say. 
based upon pattern recognition and uh, you know things that you just see weak players do over and over and over again. Now Dom's coming from the high roller arena where like you're just not going to see a lot of that. So he's basically saying like I don't trust human intuition or our biases at all more so than I can trust these calculators. So I think it's just better to perform in accordance to uh, what theory would have you do. And that's like ultimately where we landed at. So you guys think, you, do you think both of you are right? Or is there even a side here? It sounds like it's independent fields that you guys are discussing. Now yeah. I know it goes a lot more into that. Right. Because, um, you know, I did feel like the, the way that sometimes you guys were conversing there were negative there were like jabs in yeah. there for sure yeah, yeah i i didn't understand quite what you guys were arguing about in that like i feel like uh, maybe it's just because of my juxtaposition with you mm-hmm. and that i have a ton of volume with you but i feel like you've been uh talking about the same thing over and over and over again which is hey gto is great um application is completely different yeah and i have a ton of different ways that you know in esports and and chess and stuff like that where that same thing execution is just so different than just theory crafting mm-hmm. um in, in general uh and I, i'm just not sure exactly like i i guess i'm going to be a little bit harsh on dom here because in in the past Whenever we have the idea of we have a game kind of solved or we have this tool that can kind of uh, take over and hijack our decision making, uh, we find out years later that it fails. Right. And I'm not saying that this is the case for for, for uh, poker at this I'll point. I'll say that to some degree. I'm just too ignorant to, to well, be able to say Well, that. basically what I'm going to say is that for all the reasons why we're discrediting our ability to read an environment and make exploitative decisions in the moment – that's all the reason why the solver fails as well. Hmm. So it's like at the end of the day, we're still relying on the parameters being set by our observational bias. Can you kind of explain to me exactly, you know, I think a solver is a really, really bad semantic to use for the yeah. actual application. Because the solver kind of says like, hey, the game's done. Right, 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 right. I really don't think that that's the case. So can you kind of explain like uh, how people use solvers or how people use these engines like how much of your brain are you putting into it to output this answer are you inputting ranges or the solver is inputting ranges no so that's that's actually a really good question in the sense um that i do think that you're right the the over-encompassing term of solver kind of misrepresents what's actually going on uh an engine or, or or very complex calculator is a much better way of looking at it right so even to just do basic math, if we want to do two plus two, we have to input those parameters, right? To, to eventually arrive at, it, at an answer. And a calculator is very definitive because it's limited in its scope. You're not going to ask a calculator to do like, uh, you know, complex equations using, uh, you know, ir- irrational numbers or whatever the case may be. So uh, when we're talking about a solver, effectively, it's, it's trying to transition things that we observe and ask it questions. So the question asking process is uh, very human in nature, just like anything else throughout the scientific method. We, we go through these layers in order to try to remove as much bias as we can. So with the solver, yeah, we have to input ranges. Now you could, uh, there are preflop solvers. So you could have preloaded ranges that are solved in accordance to what a perfect vacuum equilibrium would look like. It's really unrealistic though, right? So if I take a preflop 
range uh, construction that is outputted by a solver. Effectively, what that's saying is that if I if I solve for like six max, it would it would it would imply that all six seats at the table are PO, for example, and they're just playing against one another and they're iterating for infinity until they finally arrive at a point where like all six seats are breaking even against one another through the preflop game tree. And you know, on top of that, it's it's very complex too because it takes post-flop game trees into consideration. So you also have to enter the parameters of like how many bet sizes per street will you give the the opponents and yourself and all these other things. And these these variables are very, very, very conditional to the outputs. And you know, that's where I think the poker community is still very young in this analysis phase is none of us are data analysis or analysts by trade, right? So we're just doing our best. We're getting all of these outputs and we're trying to parse it as best we can into some sort of applicable strategy. And that's very, very challenging. That's why, yes, you're right. The top 1% of 1% are all using these calculators exclusively sure. and really relying on nothing else. But they're also competing in fields where data is so much more readily available to them that they can actually calibrate a lot of these parameters because the environment is more stable. So when you're talking about online or you're talking about super high rollers, in the super high roller sense, you're talking about a field of like maybe sub 100 players worldwide that are playing these stakes. And it's pretty easy to kind of hone in. Maybe not easy is the right word, but it's it's semi-reliable to hone in on the tendencies of each person and give them functional ranges. When you're talking about online, there are billions of hands to scrape data from. Sure. And people are doing this on the regular. People are buying hand ranges and they are, you know, utilizing all of this data to figure out like, well, what makes sense in accordance to, you know, HUD stat A versus HUD stat C. So they, they get to use these tools much more precisely than somebody like myself who has to try to figure out over an eight hour session what this drunk guy is doing versus what this rich billionaire is doing versus what this shitty reg is doing and all this other stuff. So like, I'm just using sweeping generalizations. And that's not to say that the solver doesn't have a purpose here. It absolutely does. It's fantastic. But for me, uh, I think marrying the two, the deductive reasoning alongside with this Can you explain tool, exactly this deductive? I, I know you talk about it. Yeah. Deductive reasoning is like super wide, super sure. like vague, to be honest. Yeah. Because I, I see you saying that in mm -hmm. your tweets. And to me... What Dominic is saying is, hey, just as you said before, GTO solvers are the way to to move forward, and I have um, I have a lot to say about that. But but yeah, can you talk a little bit about like how does your deductive reasoning come into play, integrating with GTO? Right, exactly? and, and this is where my argument kind of falls apart because it's very easy to just say like it's anecdotal. You don't have any data, and more importantly, you're human, so you're biased. Okay. So that's fair. I'm acknowledging that, that up that's front. That's your premise. Right. I'm okay. acknowledging that up front. Like, okay. it's a very flawed hammer to nail type of approach, right? But I also think that humans have gotten to this point in, in uh, evolution mm -hmm. because we're pretty good at broad spectrum observation and analysis. So essentially what I'm saying is where when you're in other realms and you have the actual data to scrape, that's, that's one thing. You're able to drill down and get some pretty pretty good specifics. The information we have available to us live is largely like non-communicative and uh, you know, 
cues. It, it's it's physical cues. It's verbal cues. Um, it's pattern recognition, right? Betting patterns, uh, and it's also intimately knowing your opponents. It's quite frequent that you're going to know somebody pretty well personally that you're playing with, and from there you can deduce a lot of like what their tendencies are. Are they risk averse? Are they the type to take risk? These things matter a lot. And I'm not saying that this is how we should derive our strategy from top to bottom. But what I am saying is like, this helps us hone in on our strategy a lot more. It becomes a huge error if we just transpose some trend that we notice in the online pool, like maybe that flops are under bluffed or rivers are over bluffed, something like that, and just thrust it into the live community where that's largely not the case. Is that what Dominic is arguing though? Would you say that he's saying, hey, let's take everything that we learn online and thrust it into the high stakes, super top 0.01% competition levels? Yeah, I would say that not, I, I don't think he cares about environment. Okay. I think that he thinks that the strategies just transpose anywhere. Sure. Because essentially that is what an equilibrium Which, strategy is. In essence, he is correct. Right. You're just saying there's a higher edge. I'm just saying you're leaving so much EV on the table that you'd die before you realized the Interesting. The, the results from this. So I, I kind of want to bring this back to chess. Um, and I, I don't know. Do you know chess that well? I'm familiar. Okay. I, don't I can't know, play. I don't know it a ton. Yeah. Okay. But like for my high school uh, times, like that's all I did. Yeah. I love chess before the StarCraft days or during StarCraft days. Mm -hmm. That's all I was doing. That was my major grind and I just loved doing it. Uh, there's there's actually a couple of stories, but we'll start with this guy named Paul Morphy, considered one of the greats of all time. Some people consider him the absolute best. Okay. The problem with him in understanding if he was good or not was that he was just so far ahead of the competition that he could literally do whatever he wanted. Sure. Okay. Chess is a little bit different than poker, of course. But what was interesting and I think very instructive about Paul Morphy was that at the time, um, chess was a game played in brutal precision. Mm -hmm. Everything had a point system. Right. And that point system is arbitrary, right? Like we derived that. So a pawn is worth one point. You know, the minor pieces are worth three. A, a rook is worth five. And you just want to make sure you have more points than your opponent. Mm -hmm. That's considered a material advantage. Paul Morphy did things like he would give up material and he would sacrifice that for development. Development is just putting your pieces in spots where they do more stuff. Right. A great example of this is a knight. If you put it on a corner, it only affects two different squares. You put it in the middle, it affects eight different squares. Mm -hmm. So by that, you would consider that knight developed. So he would trade material, which is, you saw it back then, but now he would do these sweeping things that would just annihilate his opponents. Right. You do that nowadays, you get absolutely destroyed. Mm -hmm. you, you, I mean, within reason. But if Paul Morphy did some of those openings, which are considered refuted nowadays, he would just get obliterated by like 14-year-olds, mm -hmm. right? But at that time, I felt that he was implementing one of the best strategies to not only have exciting games, but also to eliminate his, his opponents and take advantage of the field. So he's doing these refuted things yep. to to win beautifully. Right. I think that is so beautiful in that, you know, we know that there are these, you know, this is the absolute best move, but we can stray off the path a little bit and still realize better returns yeah. based on who you're playing against. You know, uh, going 
let's say it was me versus a complete novice. I'm not going to go for a, a 20 move game or a 30 move game to beat my opponent. I'm just going to say, hey, let's go for a four move checkmate. If they 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 defend it, okay, we can go on into that 20 move game. Yeah. But for the most part, I can just end it in four moves. So let's just do that. There's no point. So I see a lot of parallels drawn to how you're feeling with, hey, there are things that in a vacuum, for sure, this is not the best move. Right. And I think you admit that sometimes. Yeah, yeah for sure. I think that like we have to recognize that we are playing human versus human. Mm-hmm. And if I can anticipate the mistakes that my opponent's going to make, sure, sometimes he won't make them and I'll, I'll look foolish and I'll have egg on my face. Or sometimes I will um, you know, not give him enough credit or whatever the case may be. But if I get good at that, at, at the ability to do that, and I think that in the live realm, we see this all the time. There are just straight killers out there. Totally. That, yeah, they wouldn't do well online. And they wouldn't necessarily do well in super high rollers. But they absolutely destroy the environment that they're in because they're able to operate on unstable footing. I almost feel like the the conversation of pigeonholing everybody towards a vacuum and trying to condition everybody to try to play similar to the vacuum scenarios Mm -hmm. is almost a means to an end for like the best to create a stable uh environment where they know no one else is going to implement as well as they are because they're more studied they're further along sure. in the in the learning well tree. here is the beauty about chess because i do think chess has a lot of parallels to poker mm-hmm. um and they are a couple years ahead of poker as well um let's go okay so paul morphy i think he's like 1800s mid 1800s so everybody was garbage back then yeah just recently in the past three decades we've seen the introduction in chess of engines Engines that are blow everything away. There were, you know, all, all the way from the beginning, beginning from like Fritz uh, to something called Houdini to now it's, well, we'll get into it, but there's Stockfish now. Stockfish was the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Like everybody just looks at Stockfish. I think it's like 10th iteration right now. And they say, okay, this is what Stockfish does. Let's do this move. Let's try to reverse engineer why Stockfish feels this way. Mm-hmm. Okay which I think is your solver nowadays, yeah. to be yeah, honest. Yeah. Uh, and you get these prodigy kids that are just crushing, right? Like, because they, they know all these lines. They know, okay, this is this is when I see bet on these boards mm-hmm. and yada, yada, yada. And they can imitate Stockfish really, really well. And eventually some of them start emulating them and become greats. The absolute best player in the world or one of the top players in the world right now is a guy named Magnus Carlsen. Everybody knows this guy. Mm -hmm. He has taken a look at the current um, pool and said, everybody plays like Stockfish. So to kind of wrap it back around, he does what Morphe does in that he does lines that are refuted or completely off book. Mm -hmm. And he makes sure that they go into these rabbit holes where it's just nobody know nobody's seen this position anymore. Right. And that's where his true talents and hard work is able to to kind of flow through the game. And I find it so beautiful and fascinating that Magnus um is is able to kind of freestyle a game that a lot of people are considering solved. Yeah. And I, I think that's very relevant. Uh what what's largely overlooked is the fact that um, you know, we, we truncate the game tree as best we can and we reduce it because we have limited bandwidth with our brains. We just don't have the ability to apply. Yes. But if, if, if push came to shove and we needed a solver to 
play 100% range, it would be able to derive strategies off of that range. Now, sure, it would be taking a loss uh, through some of the lines with some of the hands sure. uh, along the way. And, um, you know, it would struggle really hard to find perfect balance and, and reach equilibrium just because we don't have that much computing power yet. But the fact of the matter is that it would it would have a capability of, you know, man, manipulating the strategy such a way that it approached balance. We don't. We can't keep our frequencies in check. That's the big reason why we have to be very precise about the EV of our range and the construction of it all and the lines that we take and the sizes that we choose. And that's really what the solver has demonstrated to us. It's these broad spectrum principles that we need to be considerate of. And I don't think anybody's arguing against that, not myself, LaPlante, or, or, or anyone uh, alike. All we're saying is that, you know, when you're playing in a live game and you're against an old man coffee type who bet full pot on the river, we don't need to find any calls. Sure. Right? Like, we're, we, we can have all ins with the stone nuts and, like, we can just have folds. There are plenty of scenarios where, you know, it's impossible to fold kings preflop according to any sort of solve. But there are a lot of scenarios live where it's just like you can almost fold to a straight three bet. And I know that sounds absurd, but anybody who's put in any time at the tables recognizes that these aren't really as much of an outlier as we presume them to be. Sure, yeah. There's a reason why live win rate is so much greater than online, and it's because of the time factor, right? Not only can we not put in volume, but time puts so much pressure on everybody involved. So the weaker the player the more the time factor starts to bring in a bunch of irrationality into their strategies or lack thereof. You know, if they're stuck and they've been playing for X amount of time, they're more likely to widen and press and make even larger mistakes. And now we're just there collecting EV over and over and over again. And the, the goal is to do so in the most efficient way possible because we don't get to play a million hands with this person. Totally. I think live, you get to be a lot more abusive to your opponents. Yes, for sure. If you look at the average amount of hands played with everybody that you ever played live, it's mm -hmm. probably like around less than 50, yeah. 50 hands, yeah, yeah, right? You don't get to have that much time with all these people, right? So you can, you know, like if we're looking at like even whether or not you want to load up for that last bluff, uh, you know, and let's say you're supposed to do a 30%, I feel like you want to take that shot in that initial stage rather than uh, letting it you know, waiting for the, let's say you do it once every five times mm -hmm. rather than mixing in one of the five times where that situation is going to come up. And, and I might be wrong with this, but listen to just like this concept of um, in, in World of Tanks, I, I know I'm always going to bring back to some analogy. Sure. World of Tanks, there's this idea of alpha damage. So you take two tanks, one deals 500 damage, reload is 10 seconds. The other one does 250 damage. Um, reload is five seconds. So in essence, they do the same damage per second. Sure. Yeah. But the alpha is, I'm hiding behind a corner. I shoot you once, you shoot me once. We trade like that and, and wait the 10 seconds out. We trade like that. I'm going to win because I do double the alpha. Yeah. Um, in a game like Heroes of New Earth, they switched a lot of the percentage mechanics. So instead of saying um, every 20% something procs, it's your first hit of five procs, right? So it's a lot different because a lot of the times, it let's say it's a stun or let's say it's extra damage. Mm -hmm. It's really important that I get that first fire off right? because now if I end three in, I'm realizing, 
a much better person win percentage yeah, yeah, yeah. than the actual proc percentage um and to me in poker whenever i'm thinking about that and i, I know like let's say i'm supposed to to with like my jack 10 offsuit i'm supposed to raise sometimes i'm supposed or go all in sometimes i'm supposed to fold sometimes um generally when you're against the people that you've never even developed anything you can go with those aggressive options because you want to realize that uh that win in the beginning before it starts regressing to yeah the standard i i would take it i, I would take it a step deeper um and say that it's less about the the specific timing of the first time you pull the trigger versus the last time and much more about collecting the information that we have available to us so I would lean towards the aggressive option in the live venue because through all of the observational information that we have on human behavior, not on necessarily poker players as a whole, okay. but just human behavior as a whole, specifically in social settings, people trend risk averse, right? So if people just naturally in a social setting tend to let their guard down, tend to be a little bit more trustworthy of one another, tend to err on the side of not accepting risk, then yes, I'm going to lean towards the aggressive option. But but even without that, because I, I feel like you're 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 not wrong. That that is completely right. But what I'm arguing is that um, there is a, almost like a mathematical advantage to being aggressive first. Mm -hmm. In that I'm able to realize my wins earlier, and yes, it regresses over a long period, and it it all stabilizes. But especially in a live environment, there's two individual things I think that I'm trying to point out. One, you realize that win, and a lot of times, or you generally realize that win uh, because people are risk averse, et cetera. Um, but then you don't get, you don't even realize the rest of the hands with that human being. Right, you don't guarantee the opportunity presents again. Correct. Yeah. And the second thing is that it fucks up a lot of um, your perception of me. Well, it goes the other way too. So that was does gonna, it though? So that was going to be my counter uh, is when you're on the right side of all this. Uh -huh. Yes. Everything you're saying is absolutely true. When you're on the wrong side of this, I actually just read an article yesterday from 2009 or 2008. Chin actually sent it to me. And I, 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 thought, I thought it was like interesting given that it was almost a decade old. And it was a very valid point. It was basically stating that like in a heads up match, there is one specific element of being buried that uh, maybe should sway people to quitting sooner than later. And it's the information exchange. So when you're winning, and uh, like, so say we're playing heads up, right? And you're just beating my brains in. And, you know, when I'm calling down on river, you're just showing me really good hands. Uh, your bluffs are working, whatever the case may be. I don't gain any new information through that, right? Like when you value bet and I call with worse and you win, well, you just have hands that you're supposed to be value betting with. But if you start picking off a lot of my bluffs to get me stuck, or if I'm like making thin bets and you're calling with better hands, and that's getting me stuck. Like basically the ways, the mechanics through which we lose in this game exchange more information than the mechanics through which we win. Because the top is always the top. It's consistent across the board. Everybody knows how to play value. Maybe not as well. And there may be a gradient scale to the degree in which we can play value. Mm -hmm. But everybody knows what to do with the best hands. It's the bluffing region that is so, so skewed. Totally. And if you look at it, like let's say we have four iterations together mm -hmm. where we have four hands that's it yep and let's say my aggression is 25 percent of the time i'm going to you know do something very aggressive 75 percent of the time i'm going to fold 
if I'm aggressive on that first iteration and you don't know my percentage, right. you have no clue how aggressive I can be. Yeah, that's fair. I can go aggress, 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 aggress. Right. If I fold one of the, let's say one or two of the uh, first iterations, there's no way I can have three aggressive factors. We're both speaking to the same thing. It's the manipulation of the observational bias. Yes. And this is what Dom would basically say is so flawed and, and fundamentally useless is because we're so easily impressed upon by uh, a tiny data set. Um, it's not really trustworthy. And I agree with him in that regard. It, it really is a, a cognitive bias that we have to be aware of. Mm -hmm. Where I disagree is that uh, we can't use it in broad spectrum assumptions uh, over uh, what I would consider to be a large time sample. So I think that there's, I think the other big separation between uh, people who are doing mass iteration study versus people who are trying to uh, think more in heuristics and uh, through the complexities of the broad strokes and the principles that apply there all the way down to the mechanics is simply that one is examining sheer and utter volume. If I do this over infinite times, I will demonstrate X result, right? The other one is looking at time volume, right? Because we, we, we just don't get dealt a lot of hands, but we do get a fair amount of time at the table. So essentially, like the easiest example that I could parallel this to is if you have a drunk fish in an online table, your goal is to just deal him as many hands as possible and not really alter your strategy that much, just recognizing that his EV will be divvied up amongst the winning players in accordance to their skill and variance. If I have a drunk person at my table live for eight hours, my goal is to play as many pots as humanly possible, heads up versus the drunk player. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is this is where the, the the drastic shift is, because if I don't alter my strategy for this unique opportunity that has a set time limit to it, then I'm not really doing myself a favor in maximizing the EV of the spot. If anything, I'm doing everybody else a service by allowing them to maximize the EV by removing myself, essentially, because the, at the end of the day, baseline theory is very tight. Do you think. Not to be harsh, mm -hmm. but do you think Dom is a bit too disconnected from the main, mainstream poker community where he's just so used to seeing and playing against the absolute top that that's his I, I think it depends on who you consider the mainstream. I, I don't think he's disconnected from, from what he knows, and I don't think I'm disconnected from what I know. Yes. I think there's a hard divide between the two. I think the people that are populating your local 510 and 1020 games uh, even the people like playing 10-20-40 at the Bellagio, it's it's an eclectic mix that is maybe like, I don't know. It, it has some level of study to it, but it's not to the same depths that the $1, $2 uh, no limit tables are on, on stars. Sure. Right? Like 200 NL is now, uh, you're, you're doing something pretty good if you're beating 200 NL. 500 Zoom is like considered to be one of the tougher pools in the online community. It's like, if you go play one two with a 500 cap or two five even with a 500 cap in a local casino you're going to see a bunch of people who like can't even begin to rank the hands uh beyond these five at the top totally right? like they have no idea of range construction or the basic principles that drive this game totally. so i think that there's just a large divide and i think a little bit of it is um maybe we just don't do a great job in this community of providing the shine to the people that deserve it the most. So the people that Dom 
or, or I guess the collective that Dom represents are the best in the world, period. And that that's that's an entire spectrum, right? So even the small stakes, mid stakes online grinder who emulates Dom and studies through his tactics and wants to be Dom, Dominic Nietzsche one day, uh, he he has a path to being great. But the thing is, is that like it's a completely segregated market. Because I would also argue that the people who are able to scale to high stakes live are the absolute best at what they do. And yes, they don't transpose one another all that well. And that's not to say that if you took the absolute top tier online guys and moved them into a live realm, they wouldn't do well. Mm-hmm. It's that they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't realize the long term. They, they just, they would take more from the game than they would offer, right? So in most capacities, people would just refuse them action. It's why we saw a heads up, uh, high stakes heads up kind of die you just get to game select to a point where it's like you need two people to start the game and it's kind of the same thing in high stakes live uh whenever you have if if you could replace a high stakes crusher with a solver and just sit a robot down in a seat nobody would play in that game of course right so it's like there there has to be some sort of give and take and human exchange man there are okay let's start with let's bring it out this is my last chess analogy Okay, okay it's fine um so this is kind of shitting on solvers a little bit more, only that we're in our infancy. Stockfish, as mm-hmm. I was talking about, was the gold standard forever. Yep. In like 2018, 2017, I forgot what year it was, Google announced that they were going to make their own solver. Yeah. I This was uh, this correlates to um, Go. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you've seen... wrecked. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen AlphaGo, the doc, but uh-huh. it's phenomenal. Yeah. Well... Keep okay. So in in chess, generally, if you're playing black, you are drawing a very like that's your um that's your goal to draw mm-hmm. because white has the initiative. They get to go first. That means they get to attack first. That means black's generally in the defense. Sure. Uh, and even for white at the very high level, it's hard to actually win. So for for it to go, you know, a hundred draws, I think is not unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, they played a hundred times stockfish versus, um, gosh, uh, now I'm thinking alpha go, but yeah. it's not alpha go, but alpha chess, yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. it's called. Yeah. Um, stockfish went zero wins, 72 draws and 28 losses. Wow. That means Google made a new solver that took, I think a day to actually learn the game mm-hmm. and wrecked absolutely destroyed any capacity where every single grandmaster was looking to this solver Mm -hmm. as the end-all be-all or close to it we are just finding out now that the way that uh alpha god i don't know what it's called i I blew it i i know but i'm only thinking alpha go too but it's alpha zero alpha zero thank you uh alpha zero the the way that they play is just so instructive now like Mm -hmm. They don't, we were talking about the point system. It doesn't look at any point system. It just plays. Yeah. And it has this like weird human element to it, but also computer-esque. It, yeah. it really is a beautiful system. Yeah, yeah. And these solvers, it feels like we're just in like maybe the second or third iteration for chess. Uh, oh God, for, yeah. For yeah. poker. And, and that's the thing. And Stockfish will still beat every single human being. Correct. Right. So that's that. That's the whole point that I try to get across whenever I say like what we learn in a vacuum is so incredibly important to shaping strategy, but it's not the strategy. 
Correct. And that's the hard line I'm trying to define. Yes, Pio will beat every single human. Yes, Pluribus will beat every single six max game. Yes, uh, Colotico and Liberatus will beat every single human at this point. But they're not playing. Correct. I, I think that's the big differentiator to tie everything back. Yeah. Um, not only that, it is fucking boring. Oh, yeah. So yeah. boring. Like, honestly, Matt, you only have uh, a fixed amount of time that you can spend on a solver in your lifetime. Yeah. Right? And for everybody, it's a little bit higher, a little bit lower. But if you don't add those human elements into it, if you don't add, like, the fun part of poker, you're not going to play poker. Yeah. It, so, it's and and be I, I think you're really touching on, like, why this conversation keeps coming up uh-huh. and why... I'm hard on one side and there is the whole other camp and it seems to be two immovable, uh, immovable objects. But I think that our end goals are just very, very different. I think that, you know, the super studious data analytical side recognizes a market that's beatable right now through this process and is going to continue to do so until it's no longer beatable. And they're all very happy with that. They're going to make tremendous amount of money collectively. I, I don't know about individually, right? Mm. Um, I, I'm not well versed enough to know like what the win rates are across like all the pools, be it anonymous sites and rest of the world and all this other stuff. But collectively, that camp that is dogmatic to solver approach will do incredibly well. However, there's an end in sight. I don't know how soon. You know, it's not that apocalyptic that I think online poker is going to be solved. But what we do see happening is. People recognizing that I'm not better than a bot I could build for myself. And so now we're seeing this mass influx of botting, of real-time assistance, uh, real-time solvers, all, all this stuff kind of taking over the, the the environment. And it's all incredibly cannibalistic, right? It's just an arms race for who can accrue the most EV in the shortest period of time before this whole thing collapses out from underneath them. Live isn't that. And that's why I'm so harsh on the idea of like, don't be such a, a, a don't don't be such a dogmist where this is your end all be all. Because if we try to transpose that into live, especially the fact that we don't get the volume in, it's going to cripple the growth of the game. It's never going to die because the data is all protected. Yep. Like until people start wearing Google glasses and running HUDs on one another in real time live. You're still just never going to have the data. You're never going to know what the true, uh, you know, uh, pre-flop aggressive um, numbers are for like uh, an old man coffee versus a nit versus a drunk guy, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to have to rely on observational data. And it's always going to be imperfect. And that's what's so beautiful about live. It's what protects it. It's what allows it to continue to flourish. And we're seeing that influx in tournaments. It's bigger than it ever has been. I also think, you know, online is so special because there's that extra element of people knowing that they're being recorded. Right. Right. Like we act completely different when we know we're on camera and when we know we're not. Sure. It's just an inevitability. Yeah. You've, I'm sure, experienced that on stream where like you're playing against people, um, you know, maybe in like a back room and they play a certain style. As soon as they hit the stream, they don't want to, they don't want to say anything stupid. They don't want to I've been saying stupid. this for a long time that the vast majority of the games that I play in Ivy's room become five times more difficult the second that it's in the poker go studio <laughs> sure yeah, yeah and it's not because the losing players suddenly become winners but it's because all of the dumb shit that they do when people can't see their whole cards 
suddenly just shuts right off. Totally. Right? And all of a sudden, they're in an environment where they're conditioned to have range construction because they don't want to embarrass themselves. Yep. They're just, ha- it's, it's the idea of like letting a gambler lose his money in peace versus like putting a critical eye on him and shifting things. And, and this is kind of the argument Nick and I have been going back and forth for a long time about whether or not like the data hands that he scraped from online can transpose into a live environment. And my big, my big point is that the data is so conditional. If we took two baseball games, one that's played in the rain and one that's played in 70 degree sunny weather, we're not going to see the same data, right? And now let's extrapolate that out to all games ever played in the rain versus games that are played in warm weather. We're just simply going to see something very, very different occurring. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing happens live because it, it is, it, it's a social setting no matter what. No matter what you want to say, at a nine-handed table, you have eight other eyes judging you. Because that observational data is really all the information we have to, to, to procure. So when it comes to pulling a trigger on the river, knowing that you may get called at some frequency and you're going to have to table some shitty hand, just look at the number of times that a guy gets called and loses and goes, you got it. And like refuses to table his hand. That's a great indicator that the judging factor shifts people risk averse. And it it doesn't really allow them to pull triggers. I don't want to like beat up on this too much. I know Dom isn't here. Um, obviously, it would be great if you guys could actually sit down yeah. in, in one of these formats and, and talk about it. Um, because, you know, I, I'm kind of, I'm definitely on, on your side for a lot of this. Uh, especially coming from StarCraft. Um, I understand the idea of textbook play and, you know, GTO play, et cetera. I think that that baseline is essential, as I know you do, for constructing any of these adjustments because that's what really it is. Mm -hmm. You have a straight path, right? And then the the line kind of curves a little bit. And instead of saying, hey, I'm going to adjust here, some people are saying, well, generally people or generally the road adjusts at a 7% uh, error rate. So I'm just going to swerve a little bit like this right. to make sure I'm, I'm on the, uh, the road. I think that that's the true difference in the, how, how we're actually looking at the, the two sides. I think you're micromanaging a lot more than people are. And some micromanagements are grossly wrong, mm-hmm. I'm sure, yep. but some are way, way more winning that it accounts for a lot. It, of it just comes down to the spots. accuracy of the sweeping uh, assumptions that you can make. So one one in particular that I can point to that I think is uh, relatively true in most soft environments is people's ranges don't alter according to uh, sizing preflop. So if I open 2x or I open 5x, the same grouping of hands are likely to call three better fold. And when that's true, we now just get to make a whole lot more money by choosing the large size, right? And this is something that like, uh, I think is becoming a lot less true now that more pre-solved ranges are being exposed to the public, now that more knowledge is becoming uh, you know, available to, to the general populace where they recognize that you know certain hands are good, certain hands are bad. But like, if you think that I don't see suited connectors calling in middle position when I open 5X, like it's wrong. And as long as that's still occurring, I I would have a hard time making errors in accordance to the responses. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that like when we can point to simple mechanics like that, we can just start to make some sweeping assumptions that we can build our actual strategies off of. And when I say build our strategies, uh, I really mean adjust our strategies, right? 
Um, because at the end of the day, you're right. I, I'm still looking at all the GTO baseline. I, I, it, the the uh, discussion actually resulted in somebody else kind of like jumping in the thread and uh, you know claiming that like I can't speak from this vantage point because like uh, I refuse to actually study the Sims or know what equilibrium is. And I understand that that's the narrative that's been painted because I have been kind of like going to bat for the exploitative player. But it's like I've been playing high stakes for six plus years. I've been working with solvers for the majority of that mm -hmm. in some capacity or another. It's not like I'm devoid of the information and just speaking from my ass. It's that I like recognize where the applications make the most sense versus where they don't. So my whole thing is let's take the, the broader parts of the solver and recognize what it prioritizes when it's making its strategies. And let's take those characteristics and those principles and distill them down into something that we can utilize and lean on in real time. And I thought that this was very well demonstrated uh, in Jason Kuhn's blog post that he wrote like a month and a half ago, where he was saying like, this is why poker is so slow in the modern era. Here's my protocol on the flop. And it was like 15, 15 different points that he runs through. And I'm just like reading these over and I was like, these are all really good. And if you look at the protocols, they all align to some sort of attribute that the solver prioritizes in some sort of hierarchy when trying to develop a multi-street strategy. And he can't implement that perfectly. There are way too many variables to try to calculate that. But he can definitely parse it down to something that he's doing better than his opponents. And that's all I think we can try to arrive at. Yeah. it's It really is so interesting because I think, you know, that that strive for perfection, like it is kind of a branch off which way you want to go with it. Yeah. Do you want to focus on being more like, um, you know, the machine given output or do you want to kind of, um, I don't even know how to say it, but it's almost like improv and, and, you know, like performed comedy. What's the idea that like, and this is what really made me fall in love with no limit hold'em from the onset. It's why I don't play mix or anything like that. I I, I just remember like the early com uh the early comparison between limit hold'em and no limit was that limit hold'em was a science and that no limit was an art. And I still think that that holds true. Now I think that there are way more scientific elements to no limit than we ever gave credit totally. for, right? But I do think that like the vastness of this game tree and even in its most simplest forms like the hammer nail approach that we're kind of utilizing with solvers now, uh, it's still so, so, so undiscovered. And there are so many areas of the game tree, uh, again, going back to your Magnus comparison, where it's like just taking simple loss leaders can trigger an identification from a studied opponent of like, oh, that's a huge mistake. And these are the things that I expect to come off of that mistake. Well, if you're studied through that lens, and you don't do the anticipated mistake, right? Because the, the fact of the matter is, I can give a solver too wide of a range from under the gun, which is an error, right? It's an it's an EV mistake in accordance to like what I could be doing otherwise. If somebody recognizes I'm too wide under the gun, they may say like, oh, Berkey's too wide under the gun, so I'm going to do this in order to capitalize. Well, I can still then study the remaining solver output and arrive back at some sort of like balance. So as long as I'm able to parse these portions of the game tree, and lean into what, you know, my strengths are or, uh, you know, basically teach again to these principles rather than to the mechanics. 
we're all going to land somewhere on level ground. And it's still going to be a battle of how well can you adapt in accordance to knowledge that you don't know your opponent has or doesn't have. Yeah. Man, it's just like, I mean, I don't really have anything to say about that, dude. Like, I think we've kind of converged to to the same spot. Um, like, I, I didn't, when I read through everything, um, again, I was very confused on why it felt so, uh, it was like just so much conflict. In well, the, I think what it is is, uh, honestly, it feels almost like a meat eater versus vegan debate in the sense that like, it's easy to acknowledge that uh, veganism may, or, or sorry, let me rephrase that. It's easy to acknowledge that eating vegetables is good right? So most meat eaters aren't carnivores. They're omnivores. Mm -hmm. And they're basically coming from a stance of like, uh, all whole foods are good. Most, I'm I'm not saying all, let's parse it down to educated uh, meat eaters and educated vegans, right? And I think what ultimately happens whenever that argument occurs is meat eaters are saying, hey, we think your vegetables are really, really good too. But there's a lot of properties about meat that are great. And vegans just hardcore saying like, no, exclusivity is the only approach. So it's like an inclusive point of view versus an exclusive one. And I almost feel like the exact same thing's happening in this particular instance. There's nothing about the approach that Dom's camp takes that I think is incorrect. I just think it's incomplete. That's it. That's all we're talking about. If it's a Venn diagram, it's like, I think all of his study is very, very good. And then I think there's places to go beyond it. See, I don't even think it's incomplete. I think it's just meant for a specific group of people. Right. Right. Like you are out there. That's why I was having that differentiator of like Main Street and stuff. And I understand it's very hard to be able to quantify what is Main Street yeah. Uh, poker. Yeah. But to me, it's like you're out there on the in the streets not playing. You know, online and live is completely different. The nosebleeds to... Uh, I understand you're playing the Nisleys too, but right, like, right, you yeah. know, just the the the, the level uh, difference. Um, okay, let, let's start with this premise. He is playing at higher competition levels than you more regularly. Yes. Because of that, he has to construct a different approach than you would, because you are playing with more regular people. Yes. It's it's where we agree. But somehow also diverge. We all can agree that a protected strategy leaves evil on the table. Yes. Right? Yes. But then somehow we diverge into the sense, but still a protected strategy should triumph because you as a human being can't do better. And that's like where I just wholeheartedly disagree. It's like we can do better and we have been doing better. And like what I don't think is really acknowledged, and maybe this is ultimately where both arguments just completely fall apart is that the people making a very good living over a long duration of time in this in this uh arena are outliers right we all just have survivorship bias myself dom laplante anybody else from the high stakes community we all are operating from this soapbox of survivorship bias where we're trying to say like the lens through which i got to this point is correct And I'm trying desperately not to fall into that trap because I don't think that 
you know, you could just take a, a, a brand new fresh piece of clay and say, here, follow my path, right? Too much has changed. Sure, I, yeah. I started 17 years ago. Well, I think it's, it's even higher than all of that, right? Like even screw everybody's interpretation of how they feel about poker and the survivorship mentality. It's about methodology in competition, just yeah. in general. Mm -hmm. And I think like we're all, uh, all the parties are right in this particular thing. Like I've seen it in different things. Like if we're talking about exploiting other players, Magnus is a great example of the blend of both of them, mm -hmm. right? Like he knows book so freaking well, but then he exploits his opponents because he knows like, well, my opponent is a grandmaster level, uh, the super grandmaster level with this exact opening. This opening kind of sucks, but I know he's just or she's just a grandmaster or an IM or whatever it is. Yeah. Like we see that in everyday competition. And I would even say chess is a lot more figured out than poker. Well, there's no variance, so it makes it so much easier. A lot, the feedback loops are actually There's true. a lot less variance. There is variance in that game, though. Variance how? I think that... The execution is a big part of it. Sometimes it's just you're there and you can execute really well. You're sharper. Like you can actually think about okay. the game a lot better. That, that's that's just human variance. though. the actual game itself has no variance built in. Totally. Okay. Totally. That's yes. Fair. Like you're not gonna you're not gonna experience. The board's a, just set. It, it's set. Yeah. And that's why I think it's a lot more figured out too. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's complete sure. information. Right. There's no uh, problem with not knowing what they know, etc. Um, which you can even make a arguments that like now with range construction it's kind of more figured out it's not poker it, it's not right definitely not. and that, that's that what i guess i keep looping back to yeah is that but it's converging towards it i would say or it's getting closer it, it's kind not of. it'll never be complete like chess is again it's just one of those things where the more stable the environment the more that holds true totally the more disruptors that you have the more uh that that just won't really apply and uh, you know, again, just like going back to the current state of what live poker is, because of the time factor, people just are disinterested in trying to play a baseline strategy. It just doesn't perform well enough in a short period of time. That's not to say it doesn't perform well. Of course it does. Of course it does. It's just it deals you out of the game yeah. and out of the spots and the opportunities yeah. a lot. If I were taking shots, if I were taking 30% of my net worth to go play a high stakes game, I would 100% try to emulate GTO to the best of my ability yeah. because it's going to guide me in a way that protects my massive shot in this particular instance the best, right? But if I'm trying to maximize my win in a scenario where like I have a pretty good feel for the other strategies being implemented around me, then I'm going to go in there and I'm going to attack. Totally. Um, even GTO can be kind of... Um kind of scare what's the right word okay i'll just give the example um let's say you're in the small blind with this exact um this exact group of people that makes you you know 10 cents an hour mm -hmm. and you're playing one two yep i would actually be folding every time there and i know gto is telling me hey you should be playing that because it's profitable sure no matter what yep but to me it's just like I'd rather not get into such a complicated situation and reduce the complexity of the system mm -hmm. uh, by just getting out, yeah. right? It's a, a 10 cent loss or a 20 cent loss or whatever and it I is. And I think you're literally speaking to all of the things that I'm saying that we as professionals 
are capable of honing in on, right? That's sheer and utter risk aversion, first of all. And there are a lot of things that can back that up. Some of it is not wanting to deal with the complexity, right? So just the sheer mental bandwidth that it takes totally. in order to navigate all these spots as opposed to just passing. Second is a lack of self-trust. You're not positive it's a 10 or 20 cent spot, right? The margin of error might be 10 or 20 cents. So maybe it's a neutral spot. Maybe it's winning 30 cents. Maybe it's losing 10 cents. You're not entirely certain. So that in and of itself shifts you risk averse. Lastly, are bankroll requirements. And this is a huge thing that I, I, I think that like people who navigate the online world don't really take into consideration because they don't have the time factor to worry about. They can just crank volume, right? If you have $10,000, you just play 50 cent a dollar and you just play it at high volume until you move up. If you have $10,000 live, your barrier of entry is one, two, and the rake is really fucking high, mm -hmm. right? So like you need to get to two, five as fast as possible. You might even just start at two, five under rolled in order to put yourself in a situation where you can actually flourish. So in a lot of these hypercritical situations, you can't be pushing one to 10% edges. I mean, 10% edge is pretty big, but like it's very difficult to press these small edges, right? And that's gonna trend a person risk averse. Well, now extrapolate that out over the pool. Most people in the pool are operating out of those frameworks. For sure. And I'll, I'll even say one more, which is the human element. You know, a lot of times poker is treated, you even look at a hand and um, it's like, oh, what is the objective move that I should make here? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people forget the element of like, you increase that complexity and you increase the fatigue. Like yeah. Yeah, you yeah. are just destroying yourself. So if you're in for an eight to 10 hour session and it's a tournament, man, like if you're taking all those spots by the, the 10th hour, the eighth hour, you're, you're fucking yourself over, especially if it's the final table mm -hmm. where all the pay jumps, it really the last hours are the most important hours of the entire tournament. Right. Right. Like I think that preservation, that conservation is just so freaking important. Yeah. Not only for, um, you know, the, the, the marathon, uh, plays that you have to do, but just in general of like keeping yourself interested and in there with poker, like making sure that you again uh, people are motivated for different reasons but to me if you put yourself in every compromising situation for a little bit of ev you are going to burn yourself out with because that variance what is, is again just kind of like you. the short-term view versus the long-term view right so again just going back to the whole two different world views of this game those that are on the apocalyptic path of i'm just going to advance as far and fast and as I humanly can and grab as much EV along the way as I, I can until I have to exit, mm -hmm. um, they're going to do very well. And they're going to need to take all of these spots because there isn't really a need for a long, a long world view, right? But if you're on the other side of it where it's just like, I'm in a soft market, I, I project that this market is going to stay soft for a very long time. I want to protect the softness of this market and my durability in order to maintain my ability at a high level in this market then yeah you do need to be considerate of these other factors yeah let me ask you a question with well we'll start with live then we'll go to online my statement would be the majority of people that play live are not there really to make money they're there to play a game and it happens to have gambling and you have the potential to win money but fundamentally they are not there to make money do you agree with that or not um the the collective pool yes but i think it begins to segregate once you start getting to certain levels correct yeah definitely so 
online is completely different. And everybody online is there to make money. They're not there for anything else but to compete to grab as much EV as possible. Again, I think that uh, it segregates a little bit. There's there's fun money online for okay. sure, um, but it's less. It's significantly less. It's a much tougher market. Nobody would ever argue that online isn't more competitive. And I, yeah, I don't think I'm saying anything super controversial here. Right. But I think the the fundamental thing that I'm getting at is that there are so many because there are so many different reasons to be playing live mm -hmm. a lot more reasons there's a lot more reasons to not play based off of the um the collective data yeah even if we all had that collective data the ranges just blow up completely and now you get this this uh, group of people that just have uh different reasons for doing the things that they want to do like or lack thereof and, and I think that's Correct. really the biggest separator is that I think it's not considered how large of the pool doesn't have a strategy at all, right? I think that, uh, you know, Dom kind of made a statement of wrecks are getting a lot better. The environment's a lot more competitive, yada, yada, yada. And I just couldn't help but think that it's completely reflective of the high roller scene. The wrecks in the high roller scene are competitive. Mm -hmm. They are very well-to-do businessmen who take it upon themselves to try to get good at the things that they're doing. That doesn't transpose into two five no limit. Look, the without doubt the wrecks over time have gotten better, mm -hmm. but the population distribution remains the same. Yeah. Just because we slanted up a little bit, right, doesn't mean that all of a sudden I'm having this Twitter fight from a twenty five fifty a hundred game where a guy first wants to do red <laughs> or black for his entire stack. Okay. Does, doubles it, <laughs> gives the guy another shot on the next hand for half the amount. Uh-huh. Loses and is upset by it, so just goes all in the next hand. <laughs> so he's just all in for 150 big blinds. Like the following hand, I mean it wasn't it wasn't that obvious. It was a raise and a three bet. He cold calls and then just like gets it in. And obviously like runs into a set, goes broke, whatever. But I'm just saying that, like, you know, this isn't founded in in any sort of logic. And I'm, I'm just going to tie it up one last time to the to the conversation. You know, the last kid that I was talking to was basically saying, like, if a guy was shoving all in dark every single hand and Dom knew that the call-off range was ace-jack plus, do you really think he would fold ace-10? And I just said, I'm not confident either way. I'm not. I have no idea. I mean, it seems like, yes, he's pretty dogmatic to what, doing what the solver says to do. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like he would just pass on ace-10 in that spot. And then wait to get ace jack plus. But I don't know. I don't want to speak to the guy. Like, you know what I mean? Or speak for the guy, rather. Uh, I would love to have an actual conversation with him. But the whole point that I'm trying to make is that, like, we can take one of two approaches. We can try to strip this game down into high-frequency uh, high day trading, similar to, like, what you were conveying. And online, everybody's there to make money. Whether they're actually making money or not, totally different story. It's the same thing in trading. Everybody who's trading is trying to make money. Mm-hmm. There are losing traders. Mm -hmm. You know, there are people who suck at their job. That doesn't mean they're not trying desperately and trying to follow a path that is super analytical, super doubt into the metrics, super drilled down on the numbers, right? And, and accruing as much data as possible. It's an arms race for data. It's an arms race for speed. It's an arms race for data, right? If you move then into the live arena, all of that changes very, 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 very quickly, right? Old school trading was about being on the floor and making networks and relations. And, you know, who knows how much corrupt shit went on. I, I don't want to start getting into that parallel because that happens in the live arena too. 
But uh, the whole the whole point that I'm trying to make is there's a lot more room for margin of error in the live arena and still have the ability to be profoundly the best. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately that's what this whole giant argument comes down to is there's a massive amount of disrespect for people who pursue the live path despite the fact that we largely are giving respect back to the people who are pursuing the analytical path. It's like I will be the first to recognize that everybody in the top 10 of the GPI or the, the all-time money list deserves to be there. They put in the work, right? But I don't think that it necessarily parallels back, despite the fact that we've been peers for 17 years, despite the fact that you know I've been on a high-stakes path myself, right? And that's okay. I don't care. I, if anything, I think the live world gets too much shine. But that's a whole different discussion, right? Poker media in and of itself is, is a bottomed-out thing right now that we all need to be doing a much better job of of reining in Uh, and i kind of said this to you off air i just think that it's again like it comes down to the long world view versus the short-term view right if we look at the crushers that are in the data-driven arena none of them are making content none of them are doing anything that is going to in any way shape or form in my opinion anyway grow the game of poker right they're doing a lot of stuff to help people get better at poker. And I think that's fantastic. But um, the vast majority are just like, again, grinding out their EV and then looking to the next soft market. If you look in the live arena, it's kind of quite the opposite, right? It's like we recognize that this is just a, a long, long, long journey where we don't get to accrue volume. So it's all about like, how can we make this the best experience possible? So people start vlogging while they're putting in 2000 hours a year. Uh, people start demonstrating what their study tactics are. You know, we come together as a, a little bit more of a collective community. And I, I just think like the ultimate turning point was this, the moment that Daniel Negreanu became the villain. It's just like for the life of me, I can't figure out how on earth this guy who dedicated his entire career to building an arena that was inclusive suddenly became the villain. And I get it. The whole star's more rake is better thing. Yeah, like, first of all, I'm not trying to say he's some selfless, altruistic actor, right? A lot of what he did was for his own benefit. I get that. But that said, he went above and beyond. Phil Ivey made way more money from Full Tilt than Daniel Negreanu did from Poker Stars. And Phil Ivey's never done a fucking public appearance, right? <laughs> Daniel Negreanu's signing titties on the rail at the World Series. Uh-huh. Like, they're very, very different in the way that they contributed to this community. And I understand the, the angst towards him whenever the whole stars thing fell apart. And I understand that he's verbose or, or not verbose, but very vocal uh, and very public about his opinions. And he's very hard one way and oftentimes like not willing to, to toe the middle ground. But at the end of the day, just ask yourself, who the fuck has done more for this game to ensure that it's as healthy as it is at this point than Daniel Negreanu? And somehow we're ostracizing him as a community, we're, we're throwing him under the bus for death. It's like, what chance do we have moving forward? If you start to strip away the Negranos, what's left? Man, Berger, I know you say that. I think um, then there is definitely a huge amount of negativity surrounding him. But if you look, his whole package with the WSOP thing where you can buy part of him, dude, it filled up in like 10 minutes. Right. Like there's still overwhelming support. I think that... Um, it's just quiet just like standard media uh, 
the the loud voices are heard the most yes. or whatever yeah, yeah. you know yeah that i agree with and i think that that's i think that's kind of the issue that, that i'm saying is that twitter has now become our media source yeah well i don't think that people actually see him as a villain i know it kind of gets portrayed that way because he's done as you said some huge marketing snafus there yeah like he he sold himself at one way for a very long time and i think that to me he was being a little bit of a company man company man and also he was saying things that i don't think he comprehensively thought through to make sure that it was the most precise language possible agreed totally agree and that's not his personality everybody deserves that yeah what was so troubling to me in that two plus two form with the the ninth place main event the first comment was something like what's the point of this yeah and to me it's just like man that that hurts Mm -hmm. right like a person a human is able should be able to go on a forum and just talk and do stuff and say stuff and it not be such a well-constructed this uh, here's my premises here's my conclusion i can just say stuff yeah right like a lot of this podcast i'm just saying stuff i don't know the absolute top level of poker but what i do know is the top level of other games and i'm trying to find how they can uh you know how they're analogous to each other and i think that so often not to not to go super off topic but so often we um we don't allow people to formulate an opinion in a public space. Right. And may- maybe you shouldn't be allowed to. That's a higher level discussion. Maybe Daniel Negreanu is not allowed to formulate his opinion in front of people because he has such a huge soapbox that he needs to be so careful with his words. But we know that's not him. Right. And I think that's also reflective in that he gets so much overwhelming support and also why it's such a huge sticking figure when someone uh bashes him mm-hmm. right like when someone is shitting on him when doug polk is saying things that are very very controversial about him which aren't necessarily wrong all the time but because he's such a prominent figure people love to see that fall from grace people sure. love to see the For heroes sure. fall yeah. just in general yeah i wholeheartedly agree and i think that like uh you know uh, to the formulating the opinion part uh, i think that that is the way that we're shifting and where it becomes so problematic is that it's easy to say, like, I have hard numbers to back what I say. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you're wrong and not entitled to an opinion. And that sort of, like, censorship is really problematic because numbers are very flawed. On the surface, they may look absolutely true. But if you hear out some of these controversial opinions or, or contrarian opinions, there might be enough legs to them to make us reexamine some some angles that we're looking at right and i just think that the nature of humans are we're just so short-sighted it's so easy to say like okay this machine will tell me what to do now so i'm just gonna do that until one day it doesn't any longer and now all of a sudden the rugs pulled out and it's just like okay now where are we at and you just start looking to people who are but if you're constantly in that vantage point of like okay who do i look to next to guide me down a better path we just don't really have any shot at growth and I think ultimately, like, that's what this distills down to. To me, like, poker is the best landscape or petri dish, if you will, to test out real-world problem-solving ability. And I think we see that with Liberatus being bought up by the government to practice world war games, right? We can really hone in on our ability 
to better problem solve, to ask better questions, to examine things deeper, to get into nuance, and to really train our deductive reasoning skills that can apply far, far, far beyond this game. I, I will say this a thousand times over. I think poker players are better equipped for most real world jobs that have big picture implications than any other field on earth. And it's just simply due to the sheer volume of deep nuanced training that we have in calculating risk. Nobody else has that. No, I think for sure, if you're successful, I would even um, talk about this for most competitive games, like mm -hmm. highly competitive games where there's a, a ton of people actually playing it. Because um, that level of thinking, that volume of thinking, and also the exposure to grinding. So if you are a black belt or in karate or you are you made it to the some high NCAA basketball or NCAA baseball, mm -hmm. you've trained on a level that the majority of the population has doesn't even know about. Exactly, yeah. Right? And I feel like you have that methodology, you can convert that into literally whatever you want to do. Yeah, I agree. And I think those examples are great examples of tacticians, right? So you've trained tactically for thousands and thousands of hours. And I think that that's a lot of what the analytics are attempting to mimic, right? You can put in thousands of hours of tactical training. But what I'm saying, I guess, bigger picture is that tactics aren't really useful without an over-encompassing strategy. So like, approaching it from a more philosophical standpoint and then running it through the scientific method mm -hmm. just in my opinion yields way 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 greater long-term results than simply being able to mimic some sort of tactic i completely understand and i agree with that uh it goes back to the whole to me uh people that imitate and people that are properly able to emulate the ideas yeah right the completely in starcraft you see it all the time these new up-and-comers that's like wow this person getting got into the scene and then all of a sudden it just breaks down into mid-game end game mm -hmm. and i think that holds the same true for for poker everybody honestly the population is really good pre-flop i think got a lot a lot sure. better yeah. you get into the streets though and people are just like they make a ton of mistakes at least that's that's especially my experience at depth. yeah especially at depth and the irony is that like depth should actually kind of uh reduce mistakes in a certain way because you know stack off thresholds are so insanely high that like people should just stop investing money at certain points but it doesn't work that way humans humans throw good money after bad all the time mm -hmm. they get emotionally attached uh you know depth really does cause a lot of problems especially in the live arena yeah you know i i hear what you're saying about how online is kind of shriveling because the the evolution of the game is going towards a path where it's more bots and well, I know they're cracking down on bots. Don't get yeah. me wrong, but people are trying to emulate exactly what the solvers do. And pretty soon it's going to be solver versus solver or solver. It already is sol solving emulators versus solving emulators at this point. Um, but I have faith that it's always going to grow. It's always going to boom, yeah. especially the live environment, the community aspect of it. I know that's what you're very focused on. Um, and I say that because of chess, we've had the engines for so long now. Mm -hmm. Why are people still playing chess? It honestly does astonish me. It, it doesn't make sense, right? right. Like yeah. if, if I told you, oh, there's an engine out there that it's okay, but it could beat every single human being. Mm -hmm. Why are we watching grandmaster, grandmasters play? Right. Well, it's because they're not playing the engine. They're not playing the engine. Right. 
but Which now I think it's very critical. But, but but realize what I'm saying. I'm yeah, watching yeah. two people that are not good at the that game. That are imperfect. Yeah. Right. Well, right. they're good at the game, but compared to a bot, they're nowhere near as consistent I'm watching them play. Yeah. And then I'm watching people that are worse than them commentate on them <laughs> right. with engines. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right? Like, right. But I, I think that, that ultimately is how we define talent, right? It's, totally. It's the same thing. We could build a bunch of AI to go out and play a baseball game more perfectly than nine humans. But we want to see the superhuman ability. We yes. want to see people who are able to do yes. what we think we could teach machines to do. That is one of the toughest parts about poker mm-hmm. and, and displaying it to people. Because so often in basketball, it's easy to show hero moments. Soccer, it's easy to show it. Even in chess, you see these these attacks. It's beautiful, man. Yeah. It, it really comes together cleanly. It's like, wow, a human was able to do that. How do we convey that in, in poker? We don't. Like, because the critical eye it's ruins it. so difficult. Yeah, the critical so, eye ruins so it because for a hero moment to present, oftentimes it requires uh, an error that you can just point to on the other side. Totally. Right? And the second that error occurs, the the good the goodness of the hero moment is diluted. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh my God, nobody should make that mistake. Of course he's going to do this, that, or the other. Yeah. I think that's why Poker Out Loud is so important. Because I, I think it really does shine a light on what is important about the game, mm-hmm. where those hero moments or even those big moments happen. You know, Ryan uh, last week had an amazing moment where it calls down pretty light on like a, a King 9-9, another pair. Oh, five, Matt five, Vaughn, you mean? Yeah, Matt yeah, Vaughn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Calls down and he goes through his process. I know you tweeted it out on, yeah. on your uh, your social. And... Players all in. All right, so this is a pretty weird run out for us. Um, a lot of his logical double barrels are two heart holdings, but it's kind of weird to take this line uh, when there's a double paired board. I think the issue here is that we don't necessarily look like we have just a nine here ever. Uh, so he may not even be concerned when he has a flush that we could have better. Um, that being said, there's just not that many combinations of flushes. Uh, things like ace-queen, ace-jack. Not sure if he three-bets ace-10 suited, but he may. Uh, Queen-jack, queen-ten, jack-ten. It's possible there's more than that, but I'm not convinced he would even value jam the worst flushes. Uh, I think it's very likely that Pocket Kings checks the flop, um, although if he does bet flop, he would probably, probably keep going and the sizing does make sense. Um, I think I think his turn sizing is kind of concerning me here because I sort of would have expected him to polarize earlier in the hand with a lot of his bluffs. But uh, at the same time, like it's sort of hard to put this together. Uh, it's also only a pot size bet. Um, there are a lot of logical river bets, even if the turn size is a little confusing. His turn size could honestly just be to set up this exact spot, which is basically uh, a pot size jam. He also has plenty of those combos available in ace-queen with an ace of hearts, ace-jack with an ace of hearts. Um, and depending on how wide he's 3-betting, there could be more. Uh, I'm just, uh, it sucks that we don't have any blockers or anything. I just am not sure I uh, believe here, uh, especially when this was set up so perfectly. I've, I've paid him off once already in a not quite this size of pot. Um, but I think this really comes down to he can't put us on boats and I have a king and I'm just really 
not going to fold without a better reason to. So I'm going to call. I wish I could cut that out and just play it over and over and over again. That was a beautiful moment where if he just calls and the commentator's like, oh, well, it's pretty light. You know, you know, I think that's going right. to be good. It just it really does lose a lot of so context. Much. It loses a lot of context so without him like kind of explaining. Yeah. Uh, my hand's not very good here. I'm not comfortable in this spot, but this line makes no sense. Yeah. And like being able to vocalize that really does draw the the, the audience back in. It was so beautiful. Yeah. On a, it was one of the the few moments in poker where I was like, "This is freaking cool." Yeah. 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 Know, I really it, did think that was a highlight moment. I even said it on the broadcast. I was like, "Man, we have to clip this out." Like this is yes. such a uh, critical juncture where it's like this is where the the confluence comes together because it doesn't happen all that often that's what makes it so nice there are plenty of times where it's like you know what to do and don't pull the trigger or you pull a trigger but didn't know why and you get a result to see it all like come together where it's just like i know what to do here i know what he should be doing and it's not aligning and i'm gonna pull this trigger it's just like okay this is this is really great to watch and the closest thing that we have to that something like poker out loud is honestly live play yeah how many times it's like man did you bluff me? Right, right. And then you, someone actually says, yep. And then it flips it over yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you know? true. And we all enjoy it. We yeah. all love to see it, right? Yeah. You just love to see a guy table with shit. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I, I think that, like, leaning back on the human elements and remembering, like, that's the the real hero of this game is the fact that we are all incredibly imperfect. And honestly, like, that is the message that I'm so desperately trying to change. And it's why I lean so heavily on like, we got great at studying this game in a vacuum, but stop judging the application based on that vacuum scenario. Sure. You don't know what was happening here, right? And we even see it online. Like I, I saw Finding Equilibrium do a hand on uh, Linus Love playing three-handed, who's thought to be like the closest thing to a GTO human bot that we have. And he like disobeys the solver preflop, disobeys the solver on the flop, disobeys him on the turn, and then aligns with what the solver would do on the river and it's just like we'll make a thousand excuses for why he did what he did pre-flop flop and turn because we don't want to tear this guy down we we believe him to be the goat mm -hmm. but like why doesn't everybody else then get the same leeway like you don't know what was going on there that made linus deviate and sure we can say that like he's proven himself good enough that he gets the the luxury of deviating and we recognize that it's probably with a purpose but why can't we just assume then that somebody playing in a 200-400 game on TV probably has a fucking reason for what they're doing? Sure, yeah. It's People love to hate. We're world we're in, man. It's a yeah, weird space. It is. But, uh, you know, just tying it all back around, that's why I do think that poker, you know, I, I hear all these doom and gloom things about poker. I fundamentally think that it'll always stay around. Um, I don't know if it's going to be a No Limit Hold'em. I don't know if it's going to be Omaha. I doubt it'll be short deck, but I wish it was. Sure. I love short deck so much. I get it. Um, but fundamentally, it's because people consume poker for different reasons. Online is much different than live. Yep. And I do think that live, this community uh, atmosphere that we're building, whether it's the streamers over in Europe, I know Spraggy and, and Lex Live is coming up uh, in, in April, I think, or mm -hmm. end of March, something like that. I think April, actually. Um you know, these type of events are freaking awesome. Yeah. And people are not going there because they're playing poker and they could win a ton of money. Right. They're going there because that's the community that they live with. Yeah. That's the community. That's the lifestyle well, that they the built. Just look at the popularity around. of the meetup games. Yes. Right? Like we have vloggers traveling across the nation. These are awesome 
hobbies that yeah. people can actually interact with, yeah. you know? Like, I know you were talking um, the other day about how the way you met Brent, Brent Hanks from Poker Go, yeah. was you were just hanging out with him on Fridays yeah, we at played the poker in a, table. In a, a local game every Friday. <laughs> Which is awesome, dude. Yeah. Like, it's awesome, one, to see both of you being so successful coming from that group. But also, too, to know that that was a community-born uh, relationship. Yeah. And that yeah, he is... moved out here with me. <laughs> that's so wild. You guys live together. We lived together for two and a half years, yeah. Like, that's wild. Yeah. I, I mean, like, wild. I, I going back to, like, how everybody's arrived at this point, I think everybody has stories like that. Like, we have survivorship bias, but we also have this collective support system that has to push you through. And I fear that that's, like, also the other aspect of this great divide that we have between the analytical side versus the more uh, intuitive side mm -hmm. is that they're on their own. They're just out there grinding the numbers, the data, the the strategies day in and day out, and they're kicking it off of somebody that they haven't met before in real life, right? So they're bouncing it around in a Slack group or uh, over Skype or a forum or whatever the case may be. So the only real positive reinforcement or validation that they get is some screen name that they have some sort of respect for, right? And it becomes very easy then to disrespect people that you actually have to look at their face. Yeah. It becomes very easy to see people on TV or on YouTube or even at your local casino and just kind of look at them and say like they don't deserve what they have or I don't respect their their viewpoint of this game. I don't expect I don't, I don't respect like the way that they've done it up until this point. Or they're the old guard. We've passed them by, that kind of thing. To me, it's very seldom that someone great, um, you know, those outliers uh, are generally, to me, a product of their community and the, the group that they hung out with, and they happen to be doing whatever that they're doing. Yeah. Um, this is, like, when I started up... You're uh, saying that's common. That's very common. Yeah, yeah, agree. Very, very common. I, I think it's almost exclusively like that. Yeah. Where you have to build the community first. Mm-hmm. Whether that's, you know, just two people, just me and you sitting around here and we're, you know, just going to keep honing our craft in in uh, content creation, mm -hmm. whether it's a group of seven or 10 or 100, it yep. doesn't matter. It's you start with that group and you make sure everybody in there is really excited or, you know, really passionate about whatever they're doing. And it just breeds more passion and more, yeah. more work into that. I think um, that's why... Yes, we have all of these killers with the solvers and stuff like that, but fundamentally, 
the best players, I think, are going to come from community, and the community is still going to be the number one thing that poker is going to be working on no matter what. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that even holds true across across the board there. Everything. They, they've all come from other subsets where it's just like you look around and they're friends with the best as well. You know what I mean? Uh, and I think like that's just natural. Like collaboration breeds leaders. Leaders then have a group to uh, kind of like hone their craft with and and support them. And from that comes innovation. Man. I'm exhausted. We really... <laughs> I feel like we talked about this comprehensively. Yeah. Still, I think that you should have Dom on the show. I think you guys love to. definitely need to talk about it. I know. He's... Um, it's so hard having an in-person podcast. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, Would you ever consider just having him on the screen right here? I don't know. Uh, we've kicked around the idea. It's It's very, very weird with the camera setup. It's possible for sure. Sure. Uh, anything is doable, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll consider it some more. It, it takes a, it definitely takes a quality hit from a production standpoint. Sure. And I do like the element of it being in person. Um, it feels like it requires less mediation. Like when you actually have to sit with somebody and look them in the face, there's a lot less need for a mediator to keep the conversation, uh, on, on course. And avoid it from straying down like either rabbit holes or, uh, you know, what about isms or especially in a debate of any sort. Um, it's tough without mediation. But yeah, I'm open to pretty much anything. I think these are really good public forum discussions to have. I think everybody benefits. And I know that like the outsiders looking in probably get tired of seeing the same faces constantly in debate. But at least from my standpoint, it's in good faith. Like I'm not trying to prove Dom wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's necessarily a right and wrong. I think so a let me ask wrong. you, what are you trying to prove with that, with the conversation that you had from him? Uh, I'm, I'm honestly not trying to prove anything. I'm just trying to uh, establish some sort of middle ground where we can all agree that the game isn't one way. Mm-hmm. Like for me, it's just about changing the messaging. I, I think that like we've been, a, we've been in a very divisive, uh, I guess, community for the better part of like three or four years. And I don't think it needs to be that way. It's fine if we're all going to sit out there and judge one another and say like, no, I'm the best. No, I'm the best. No, I'm the, this guy sucks, whatever. That's okay. That's competitive. Let that happen. Like, I love what Bryn does. Let him do his thing, man. Let him go out there and say he's the fucking goat and then back it up. That's great. Yes. Fine. What I don't like is that somehow we've put this measuring stick to all of it, right? We don't know who the greatest is and we never will. It's a subjective game, just like any other sport. And the fact now that like people were being held their feet to the fire in accordance to this measuring stick that is simply only analyzing the vacuum uh, element of it, I think is incredibly unfair and very, very uh, destructive and divisive mm-hmm. to the community as a whole. It's why this divide exists. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks again. for being here. I appreciate you hosting. Yeah. Well, it was a half host, right? Uh, that's fine. Yeah. I-, I-, I wanted to get into more than just this. Yeah. But- um next time well we'll save it for next time sure definitely for sure matt burke thank you so much um i don't know how you guys close this out but i'll do my close out by all means okay uh guys at home if you don't know already software y is going to have a meetup game march 5th no 6th 6th to the 8th to the 8th down in austin, austin texas yep. right. make sure to be there where can they find more information about that um Conrad will put it right here on the board. Oh. And then also on any of our social, you can follow us. Right on. Conrad, put it here and then make sure that the graphic is behind my hand now. <laughs> okay? <laughs>
It's right here. Go here, guys. Sure. Um, April 3rd to the 13th, we're doing Run It Up Reno. Again, a very community-driven festival. Uh, we happen to be playing poker. Uh, all the pokers. Yeah. You can find literally every variant of poker plus ones that you didn't know that existed. I can't wait. I'm pumped to be there. And uh, for everybody going to Run It Up Reno, just swing by Vegas a little early. You got to. First to the third, we got the Academy. Yes. May as well pop in. We got four seats left. You have to. Yeah. You have to. Um, Berkey, I-, I can't... I mean, we agree on so much that I don't want to stroke it too hard. But um, I-, I really believe in a lot of the things that your training is doing, especially after these conversations. Um, you know, StarCraft, again, has different types of players and they range all over the place some are super textbooks some are the most creative type of people that do really out of the box things the more i talk to those creative out of the box things they have that level of i know what the builds are i know what the meta is let's really abuse this pool yeah yeah, right and let's abuse this player yeah and i i happen to think that both are right and you see both types of people yeah in that higher level echelon of starcraft yeah and uh, I think what you do offering the other side of the coin, or I wouldn't even say that, but just a different approach, a yeah. different lens to poker um, is more applicable to humans, to the current mainstream poker uh, community. And, uh, and, and I'm glad you're doing it because Thanks. there's not enough people, I think, in the content scene that are doing it right now, especially with all the solvers. So with that being said, from Matt Berkey and myself, Andre Hangshaw, we'll catch you guys in the next vlogcast. See you later.